tonight on Arena. Bally Walter, Dumb Money and The Lesson are the movies up for review and we celebrate the multifaceted career of Mel Mercier. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena, and we start this Thursday show as always with the best of the week's films. First up, from the small screen, where he's now presenting the Late Late Show. Of course, Patrick Keaty jumps to the big screen in a gentle comedy drama set in Northern Ireland. Stars alongside Shauna Kerslick in Prasanna Puranaj's directed Bally Walter. The two play rather lost souls in need of a jolt to find new direction in both their lives. Next up, drama based on real life shenanigans in the financial world back in the in 2020 and a film very much for fans of the big short I think it's safe to say this one is called Dumb Money directed by Craig Gillespie with a stellar cast that includes Paul Dano Pete Davidson America Ferreira and Seth Rogen and finally The Lesson a British drama centering on an accomplished but cantankerous author played by Richard E. Grant who alongside his wife played by Judy Delphi take on a tutor for their son the tutor is played by our very own Daryl McCormack last seen on the big screen opposite Emma Thompson in Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. Cara O'Doherty, Chris Wasser have been watching the films for us and they're with me in studio this evening. We'll start with Bally Walter. Um, I, I suppose lots of people will be familiar with Shauna Kerslake as uh, as a Dublin actress for to a large extent, but here she takes on a Northern Irish accent starring opposite a true Northerner, Patrick Keelty, in his first big screen role. Prasanna Puanaraja is the director. We spoke to him actually last week on the, on the programme, or was it earlier this week? I can't remember now. Cara, th- this is a relatively low budget, kind of gentle dramedy, I think it's, it would be a reasonable way to describe it. Just give us a set, an idea of the setup and the two leading characters, Eileen and Shane, played by Shauna Kerslake and Patrick Keelty. So, uh, Shauna Kerslake, she's playing Eileen. She's on a break from college, or so she says. She's moved back home to her, back to Belfast for childhood home, uh, much to her, her, her mother and her sister not very happy about this. She's, she's a little bit messy. Uh, she's not the most responsible uh, young, young woman. And she's two jobs. She works in a cafe where she's, um, she's not good with the customers. And she drives a taxi. And then um, she also isn't really very good with them either. She just doesn't like people very much. Um, and she picks up a fare um, and it's Patrick Keelty. Um, his character's called Shane. He's about a man who's about 50 who's hiding out in the coastal town of Ballywalter. His relationship is on the rocks and we're not quite sure why mm-hmm. he's chosen Ballywalter as his place to hide out. She gives him a lift into Belfast where he is going to comedy classes and through that, going back and forward from Belfast to Ballywalter, we get to learn who these two characters are and we find out uh, mm-hmm. why why Eileen yeah. isn't too happy and why he's hiding out. Yeah, absolutely, why he's hiding out in, in this in this town of Ballywalter. And I, I said it to uh, Prasanna Buonaraja on the night, how did you negotiate that one, that you would have the film released in in practically, you know, a couple of days after Patrick Keelty's debut as the Late Late Show host, but obviously they knew nothing about the Late Late Show when they were making that film back during lockdown. In fact, I, I think the film was made. But Patrick Keelty, actor, is a real revelation here, Chris. He is, yeah. I was not expecting this. And he finds it funny too that, you know, they did film this a couple of years ago between lockdowns. And as September's go, it's up there with the best of them because you mm. could not have timed that release. He also said that when he was initially offered the part of Shane, 
he thought it was a joke. He thought he really was being set up. He auditioned for it. It's something that he wanted to do. He didn't think for a second that he'd get it. Because you are thinking, this guy, you know, he's a professional clown. And, you know, he's a broadcaster. He's a radio yeah. presenter. We've never seen him act on screen before. So you're thinking that there should be something a little shaky about him. That he's opposite Shauna Kerzik, who's a complete pro, who's had, uh, yeah. you know, wonderful performances. Yeah. yeah, under a belt. You think that that would create some nerves. If they did... You can't see them. It's quite a steady control turn. There might be some people listening and thinking it's about this guy who he needs to be taxied uh, to him from his, yeah. the, these comedy classes. Um, and you think to yourself, well, Patrick Kilty's playing a comic. That, that's not going to be yeah, too far out of reach. Too far from but that's is. not what he's doing. He's yeah. playing somebody who's also broken. And those type of performances are very hard to do. But in a way, he makes it look effortless here. Yeah, in fact, he's not, he's not playing a comic at all. He's, he's playing somebody who's decided to go to comedy to try to deal with... To try and mend the broken yeah. heart, to try yeah. and fix himself, yeah. yeah. Let's listen to a clip between uh, Patrick Kilty then and the taxi driver Eileen, played by Shauna Kerslick. This is quite early on um, so conversation in the taxi is you know there's not Tense. there's not a lot of conversation <laughs> going on she doesn't like talking to people really in, in the cab it's not the best job for her either let's have a listen what are you watching? this uh, comedy stuff for your thing so you want to be a comedian? not really it's just like a wee course you know at the end we all try out our material, a sort of wee gig thing. Right. Took me. And what do you watch? All difference. Who do you like? Comedians. Hi. I don't know. Who do you like? Like a lot of the American comedy drama, you know. Saturday Night Live, great. Tradition, stand-up, Stuart Lee, Bill Hicks, Chris Rock, some of the old-school British classics, Morgan Wise, Molly Python. He's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. Seen there from Bally Walter with Patrick Kilty as Shane and Shauna Kerslake as Eileen. And Cara, I know there are people listening right now saying, ah, oh, RTE, would they just not stop reviewing other people in RTE? Put the Late Late Show to one side. If that had never happened and we were reviewing Patrick Keelty now, who we would have known as a comedian, and yes, from the, his presenting roles as well, if we were reviewing him now as an actor, we'd be jumping up and down. We really would. And, and like, it does, it, I mean, it, the timing is, is absolutely bizarre. Uh, but in a way, it's a little unfair to the film that all this extra yeah. attention has gone on. And actually, I'm guilty of it as well. Shauna, who is so, so I was good, going to say to you, let's not forget yeah, her. Because I mean, it's about the two of them. It's completely... It's a complete two-hander and she's possibly being a little bit forgotten in the whole Kilty mania. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we need to remember just how amazing Shauna Kerslake is and uh, this is no exception. But really, uh, Patrick Kilty is, is an absolute surprise, as Chris says. I mean, I wasn't sure what he would do in his first outing. I certainly did not expect yeah. this. It is a self-assured, confident performance and to be able to find that fine line between broken yet not completely falling apart, it's a very hard balance to find and he found it perfect. In this. And and let's face it, Shauna Kerslake, to, to give her her due here as well, you're only as good as the person you're acting opposite. And that's true for the both of them. So he's only as good as she is. Uh, and, and she similarly has a very difficult role to play here in that mm. she could be eminently unlikable because of her behaviour. 
but she still evokes sympathy from us. Yeah. Her, she's she's pretty nasty to people. She's horrible in some ways, the character that is. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's almost as though she knows what she needs to do to, you know, to try and at least fix her life, but she just refuses to do it. She refuses to face the truth, which is that she is stuck. She is in a bit of a rush. Uh, and Kersik and Kilty, they, they work tremendously together. It's You can tell that this is a film that's been workshopped, that's been true, you know, a And not in a rehearsal. bad way, yeah. No, no, in a, in a fantastic way to like to develop that yeah. interplay and that and that chemistry and that connection um it is in a way it's 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 a, it's a tale about depression and it's about what happens you know when that light goes out for a lot of people and some of us know what that that feels like and watching it you're thinking to yourself this is a tricky balance to tell this mm. story about two lost souls who are quite depressed and they need someone to help them out of this moment that's that's, that's a tricky tale because if you go if you have your characters talk too much about what that feels like it just becomes, you yeah. know, something unrealistic. It becomes quite stagey. If you go the sentimental road, it's not quite authentic. I don't know how they've done it, but the screenwriter, Stacey Gregg, yeah. the director, Persana, they've hit that sweet spot where they've created something that feels authentic, that feels realistic, but that's also funny and charming. I think uh, Chris has touched on it there, uh, Cara, because if we talk about Shauna Kerslake and Patrick Keelty as a duo, we have to talk about Stacey Gregg, uh, script writer, and Persana Puana Raja, who we would know as an actor for, for the most part here as a director and the, the two of them together equally have, have brought something really magical on screen here. I mean they, they, they worked together for the first time about 10 years ago they did a short for Channel 4 and mm. over the years they've worked together in theatre a good bit so they have formed this really great co- uh, collaboration and partnership and I, w- I would love to see now if somebody I mean this was a, it's a beautiful film made on quite a small budget I'd love to see what would happen now if somebody came and gave them a big pot of money and said there you go go play with that because uh, they really uh, yeah, between, they did a lot with very little here. They really did and I think one of the things yeah. that Stacey as a northern woman she really captures that northern sense of humour yeah, yeah. which is um, and, and Prasanna as, as an Englishman has certainly embraced it and has a, no problem translating that to the screen Yeah and as he told me himself he's he's from um, he, or he spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland and that and he's from a Tamil background and he kind of saw parallels between living in regions of conflict which is th- that's part of this story yeah. as well the post-conflict fallout I suppose Alright um, um, stars from you on this one Chris Oh that's a lovely piece of work Tender thoughtful quite funny in places Sean yeah. too the dad jokes in here top notch top notch <laughs> dad jokes uh, and can I just say too accents are a tricky one to, to, to yeah. get right in films and especially when you're acting alongside you know real northerners mm. uh, Sean Kersick's northern accent to these ears at least is no perfect yeah. um, so great performances great direction lovely writing would love to see Kilty act again four stars yeah well if you're going to try cast him in something he's not available on Fridays you're going to he have to he can work shoot. during the summers there you go <laughs> alright you've got it sorted already <laughs> got it sorted. so what did you say five was four, it we'll go four, 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 yeah. four sorry beg your pardon putting stars in your mouth um, what are you saying overall Cara oh I'm going the same I mean it's 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 thoughtful really clever script excellent performances and I'm going to echo that uh, Mr Kilty if you're listening uh, please make more films you know yeah on your off time yeah, uh, fair enough. And Shauna Kerslake, please continue to make films. Uh, she is stunning in this uh, as well. Right, let us move on to Dumb Money. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, Chris, essentially, you could say it's, it's, I don't know if it's an accompanying piece to The Big Short, but if you like, The Big Short is the big flashy one. Yeah. And in some ways, Dumb Money is the, the much smaller scale, Tinier. ordinary guy yeah. type of one. This would make What's for a hell of a double bill. It would, yeah. it would make your head spin. Oh yeah, sure. We can. We'll, we'll have a. We'll have another Barbenheimer before we know it. Yeah, somebody yeah. else can come up with what dumb money and the big short. You can come up with the the yeah. title for that double bill the, for us. So what's the setup? 
Uh, the setup is that uh, towards the end of 2020, you had this part-time YouTuber, full-time financial analyst who called himself Roaring Kitty. His real name was uh, Keith Gill. And he told his 800-odd followers about his new favorite stock. He just liked to talk about stocks online. And one of them was the GameStop stock. So you were talking about the US video game electronics retail chain that was in trouble, putting it mildly. Mm. Um, you know, it was it was basically going under the physical stores where it were hanging on. Um, and we had a bunch, uh, there were a bunch of head fund managers that were betting on you know, I'm relying on basically this stock to fail. Um, so he was advising ordinary investors, you know, ordinary Joe Soaps to put a bit, you know, put a bit of trust in this. Let's bet against Wall Street. Let's put, you know, put your life savings as he did into GameStop. And so no surprise, within a month, you had this artificial stock hike where GameStop, uh, shares, GameStop shares just went through the roof. And all of a sudden you had, you know, the fat cats and the tech bros and these kind of, you know, sleazy money men just panicking because of all of these short squeezes. And I really hope I'm explaining this right because mm. I'm starting to confuse myself. But it was this incredible story. The idea was ago. that you have to, they will keep, the big guys will keep battling against you yeah. to try to bring the stock down. You've got to hold. You've, You've got, got to, to hold, hold on. Yeah. You yeah. don't sell. You had all of these amateur online traders essentially pouring thousands into the GameStop shares and then turning on their phones the next morning and seeing that their shares had you know double quadrupled they were they were becoming very rich people so it's an incredible true story the YouTuber ended up in front of a congressional hearing you had lots of money men losing literally billions of dollars um, so incredible that you know within a very short space of time you had a non-fiction bestseller and now we have a film where you've yeah. got a, an ensemble of uh, you know very starry players from Paul Dano to American Ferreira basically playing all the important players in yeah. the story well we'll have a listen to it Keith Gill is the Paul Dano character he's the small time trader he's online and he's saying to people buy this and hold it buy and hold buy and hold Roaring Kitty is his online moniker he has followers uh, a nurse Jenny uh, played by America Ferrara we'll hear her voice here as well and also you'll hear some of the the big guys on on uh, Wall Street in here as well Seth Rogen Vincent D'Onofrio and Nick Offerman all of them you know involved with big time Wall Street companies Yo, what up, everybody? Roaring Kitty here. I'm going to pick a stock and talk about why I think it's interesting, and that stock is GameStop. I love this guy. Retail traders have hooked into GameStop. I think they think it's a good investment. It looks like there's one guy driving all the buying. Who is this schmuck? Dumb money, man. Happy to take it. Wall Street is betting that this company is going to fail. But if it fails, these hedge fund assholes make a shit ton of money. 70,000 people have watched this video. Kitty, I love you! If he's in, I'm in. If he's in, I'm in. GameStop, those shares not stopping. Those stock is only going to go up. Wall Street must be seeing this, right? Holy fucking shit. Holy shit. Holy fucking shit. Um. Babe, how much did we make today? Five million. How much did we lose today? A billion. And yesterday? Four million. And yesterday? A billion. Babe. Yeah. We're like really fucking rich. Oh yes, there you go. Apologies uh, about the language in that uh, in that particular clip, but you can hear from that, Cara. It really is the small guy taking on the big big guy, and of course. 
all of us, unless you have a, a member of a hedge fund uh, of your own, Cara, all of us are cheering for the small guy. <laughs> I wish I had a hedge fund, except for I still don't really understand what they are. So better, uh, best <laughs> better <not>. stay away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing that I really loved about this, it is, it is a total underdog story. And I mean, who doesn't love an underdog? Mm. But the thing that I really love is I was actually kind of, my hands were sweating going into this. I do not understand a single thing about this world. I, I'm terrible at maths. I literally, my brain fritzes out the second somebody says a word, the word stock. I'm like, what? No, go away <laughs> yeah. from me. But I actually not only could follow this film, I didn't switch off and I really enjoyed it. And I love the fact that Craig Gillespie, the director, has made a film that people like me can understand because it was people like me who ended up putting money well, cleverer than me because I didn't realise you could do it. But people similar to me, ordinary yeah. people, put their, their faith in Roaring Kitty. And in a way, Craig Gillespie has honoured those sorts of people by making a film that, um, yeah, um, to, um, what, what yeah. We, that, yeah, phobia people like me can understand. And the other side of that is, Chris, it's not just that he the, the thing is explained well. And often in these films, I found it with the big short as well, you understand it while you're watching it, but then when you try to explain it afterwards, you get lost fairly quickly. But yeah. it is, you, you are absolutely understanding it as you're watching it here but it's about the humanity of the situation not least of which is the Keith Gill the Roaring Kitty the Paul mm. Dano character his wife played by Shailene Woodley and his brother who's the brother who plays the Pete brother Davidson. Yeah, Pete Davis as the, uh, Davison as the brother I mean that can, and his parents that familial relationship that's what we're looking at we're looking at the human stories rather than getting bogged down in the finance yeah that helps and you're absolutely right while you're watching it you think I've got this I've got this down yeah. but then I try to explain the plot to you there and you get a little bit confused um, yeah the Paul Dano family situation I quite like that I thought Shane Woodley was very good as the you know as the compassionate caring wife a um, um, little bit underused um, Pete Davidson who I I usually break out in hives at the sight and sound of Pete Davidson mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say um, I've never really found his brand of you know SNL humor or quite, you know, as endearing as others. Uh, but here, he is playing the guy that we can relate to the most because he's the only one in the room saying, I'm sorry, did you just earn $11 million today? You have to cash that in. And other people are holding and he calls yeah. them idiots. And you're thinking, they are idiots. Yeah, Thank you, Pete. Get the money and run. Uh, so Pete gets all the best lines. He is quite funny in this. Um, and it is nice that the film kind of floats around America and we see a GameStop employee uh, um, who is, you know, also kind of, you know, yeah. betting against the money men. We see uh, a nurse played by uh, uh, American Ferreira, her second great performance of the year following Barbie, um, putting her life savings into, yeah. into to just the, the, the actions following the actions and words of this YouTuber she's never met these are, are real stories this, this, this yeah. really happened and it is good that the film focuses on that rather than the fact yeah that good though you do have to without giving anything away you do have to say well if, do they cash in and do they not cash in and if they do cash in is that kind of selling your soul but you're going to have to go and see the film to, to, to decide on that we should also mention Seth Rogen in that in this respect Cara in that um He's kind of playing against type here as well. He, I, I don't think he has a funny line, although not intentionally <laughs> yeah, funny at any rate. He's indirectly very funny as as this very steady stock man who, yeah. who's losing money left, right and centre yeah. and trying to go to the even richer people looking to get that money back. It's, I think it was absolutely lovely to see him playing the smart guy, the straight guy being all buttoned up. Uh, and it's I, I'd, it'd be, I'd like to see him do more of that because yeah. we've seen Seth Rogen be Seth Rogen for years. It's really isn't nice to see him breaking away from from himself really yeah and he wasn't chewing the scenery for a change he was letting it <laughs> leaving yeah. it stand you know which which kind of made him much more enjoyable to watch it did yeah it's also one of those films where like the big short like the social network people often have a habit of just kind of 
talking in that straight off the page lecture speak sort of way where they're constantly required to explain yeah. the plot to the viewer so that gets a little bit annoying after a while like I mean I, I think it's safe to say that this film is very pleased with itself but it does play out like an ensemble comedy the difference being that the ensemble never actually gets to meet yeah. um, and I think that's what saves it the comedy yeah. is what is what elevates yeah, it and, and we meet some of the real people in very clever ways um, which I think is uh, one of the film's great strengths stars from you on this one Cara I am going for a solid four stars it really is very entertaining and definitely um, extra points again for, for making me understand it I feel so proud of myself <laughs> to finally understand and be able to talk about a businessy type film it's amazing alright uh, hang back until 8 o'clock and explain to me then <laughs> how to make money on the stock exchange please and Chris what are you saying stars I liked it I don't think it's as it's as clever as it thinks it. I think Craig Gillespie sometimes thinks that these films are explaining a lot or doing an awful lot mm. more than they are when really it's just a fun reconstruction of a compelling story I'd say there's an awful lot that's left out yeah. here so it's fun while it lasts but I don't think it'll stick with you so I'd say about three and a half out of five. Three and a half is what you're going for then for uh, dumb money let us move on then finally uh, another film that we spoke about in fact we spoke to the director in this case Alice Troughton about The Lesson uh, starring Richard E. Grant Julie Delphi and Daryl McCormack written by Alex McKeith and as I say directed by Alice Troughton horrible people um, making horrible art and making lots of money and basically behaving badly is at the heart of this work Cara it certainly is uh, so our, our lovely Daryl McCormick plays Liam he's a, a he's a, a graduate in English literature and he's hired as an English literature tutor um, to um, a fella called Bertie played mm. by Stephen Macmillan and he is the son of this highly acclaimed pompous novelist uh, J.M. Singh Claire, played by Richard E. Grant. Uh, actually, pompous isn't even the word for him. He is. He <laughs> That's is, too kind. It is too kind. Um, I can't use anything else without being put off air. But he's very. He, he's also very cruel. Um, yeah. he, and he's malicious. And the ego. The ego is the size of this building. Um, and his wife is uh, Helen Julie Depley, and she is a. She's an art curator. They live in this amazing, amazing house in the country. Life looks beautiful in the on the outside, but it's very fractured. And they bring in this fella to tutor their son, and the the fractures temporarily yeah. smooth over before things change again. Yeah. Um. Here's a clip with Richard E. Grant as the aforementioned novelist J. M. Sinclair, his wife Helen, played by Judy Delpy, their sons tutor Liam, played by Darren McCormick. And they're asking, the parents are asking what they studied today, um, asking Liam what their son Bertie, who's also in this clip, Stephen McMillan, what did you do today at school? So uh, what did you two study today? Hamlet for the most part. Oh, you looked into the manuscript tradition yet? I've got uh, a few articles. Hmm. I can make up a reading list. Thanks. You can thank him when you get in. If... If you get in. We should have a chat about the lesson, see how it went. I'm sure Bertie has I'm sure he does. Which is why we'll discuss it after dinner. You can wait in the drawing room when you're finished eating. Liam. You're out. And the sound you heard at the end, at the end there is the son, uh, the, the, the Stephen McMillan character, 
topping up Darren McCormick's glass right to the very top with a very fine red wine, I would imagine it wasn't. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't cheap luck that they were that they were drinking there. Rachmaninoff playing in the background, and there's all sorts of snobbery around music, around literature, around the visual arts uh, in this family of the Sinclair family. Chris, yeah, uh, J.M. Sinclair. Nothing and nobody is good enough for J.M. Sinclair, but he's having a little bit of a problem in that he's no longer as good as he'd like to be. Mm. Um, he is trying to complete his next masterwork, but he's having trouble with the ending and it, it doesn't take long before he realises this chap that they've invited into their home to, to tutor their son is quite good with words and he might have a great story of yeah. his own tucked away so after a spot of you know I think it's like he, he his printer's broken Liam fixes it for him he's, he hands him over his, his manuscript and says will you proofread this and that's when things start to get a little bit too tricky he gets a little bit too close and when I was speaking to Alice Troughton um, and she was being a little bit cagey about the noirish aspect of the film and it's understandable in that there is a kind of a twist about two thirds of the way through um, in, in terms of the film and the direction that it takes uh, but did you see the noir elements within it Cara within the film itself Oh yeah, there's a lot of nods there to uh, films or even, well, I suppose, more books of, of a similar ilk. Uh, there's a lot of hiding in corners or, or cosy conversations or conversations in, in beautiful corners that can turn on a, on a kind of a, a knife edge. Um, and it's very hard to trust anybody in this house. I mean, everybody has an agenda and, and, and are kind of, apart from Mr. Pompous Man, um, our attention kind of moves between the others because yeah. somebody's up to no good, but who is the question or, or are they all up to no good? Yeah, yeah which is kind of um, the direction you find yourself looking because even the butler is yeah. a nasty bit of work here as well uh, over performances what's to, who stood out for you and stars Chris uh, McCormick is great here uh, yeah. quite a quiet steady performance but a compelling one Richard E. Grant uh, goes above and beyond as he always does quite playful and Julie Delpy was a delight as the kind of you know mysterious mm. matriarch in the corner you're never really sure what her part is in all of this it works best as a straightforward drama not so much as the edgy elaborate thriller that it thinks it is I think this star Started well about an hour in, it just slipped on a banana skin. And the twists that you mentioned there, we won't go get into it. Yeah. They just didn't fit. It doesn't add up. It's not as clever as it thinks it is, unfortunately. Great performances and a lovely cast save it. So we'll go with three stars. You're going with three. What are you saying overall, Cara? Uh, pretty much the same as Chris there. Also, I have to say the the score is fantastic. It's Isabel, Isabel Waller Bridge. A lot of the film is about classical music, mm. and she's created this really great atmospheric sound score to go with it. But that ending, it just it just does not fit with the rest of the film, which was so taut and confident. So three stars as well for me. Three stars from you. That is uh, our third and final film this evening, Caro Doherty and. Chris Wasser speaking to us about finally there the lesson and before that Dumb Money and Bally Walter. The last time we spoke with Port Audrey Malloy, it was at the ungodly hour of 4.45am, at least at 4.45am in her home in Sydney, Australia. It was 7.45pm here in Ireland, I'm glad to report. That was two years ago on the occasion of Audrey's debut collection, The Important Things. Uh, but rather than get up at a quarter to five in the morning again, she decided to travel to be with us this evening uh, to talk about her second collection, The Blue Cocktail. Both countries and changing ideas of home play a prominent role in the new poems, as you might expect. Other themes include the natural world, childhood, the body, sensuality, and lots more besides. You were you were coming up from down under anyway. Um, I, I suppose 
coming home and launching the book and uh, as you have did you launch it in Clifton just the other night was it um, in in um, the in Dublin on Tuesday night and then mm. I was at the, the reading on um, on Monday in Clifton so getting getting a chance to come home and do that well I'm saying home but that's that's my presumption um, getting to come to Ireland and do that how important was that to, what does that give you in the in terms of the the new collection well, um, Sean, first of all, thanks for having me um, and it's lovely to be here. Um, look, the the book explores ideas of home and what that means. I've spent nearly half my life now in Australia, which is my adopted home. Mm. and um, but, Aust- uh, but Ireland still is my, obviously, my childhood home and I spent my formative years here. So, uh, and my publisher is here and I feel like I'm an, uh, my poetry is Irish poetry still. So it's very important for me to keep in touch regularly, be here and... Uh, um, you know, maintain that part of myself. And it, your poetry is Irish poetry still, you say you feel that, but as people who often have lived away from their birthplace for a long time will say, when I'm in whatever that other country is, in your case, Australia, people just think of me as Irish. And when I come back to Ireland, then people think, oh, well, yeah, she's the one who went off to Australia. That's so right. she's Australian. Does is Is that a help for a writer, that kind of, the outsider type of feel? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, look, I think so. Um, I think a lot of writers feel like outsiders regardless of where they've grown up. You see Patrick Kavanagh, you know, Inishkeen mm. Road, you're, you're, everyone's going to the dance, you're at home doing your writing. So um, I don't know if it's a help, but I think it's very a, a commonality with a lot of writers. Um, I definitely can relate to that, um, you know, not getting the jokes, not not having the backstory, not having the, the full map of the city um, that the people who've spent their whole life there have. So um, I, I wouldn't trade it. I like mm. my choices, um, but I am aware of that. I guess, too, there is the, the memory aspect uh, of the emigre, I suppose, in some ways. While you're, you mightn't be crying into your pint of Guinness um, singing Cabalias, is there is there a kind of a, an extra layer of nostalgia that you have to watch out for? That when you're looking back with rose-tinted spect- spectacles up to the Northern Hemisphere, that you have to say, oh, be careful now. Don't be painting something that didn't exist. Um, I think a lot of it is just nostalgia for times that have gone in your childhood rather than missing a place. Rather that, you know, th- that wears off as soon as you step off the plane into sort of 11 degrees and, and <laughs> s- you know, sleet. So, um, I look, I think... Oh, you were here in June, were you? <laughs> A lot of it um, is just, you know, I think a lot of people hark back to those sort of mm. childhood memories and it, it feels like you're missing a place, but it's actually you're missing a time. Yeah. And I guess the first poem that I want you to read, there's a, there's a sense of that within it. Uh, where would you place this in terms of your own life? And again, I'm presuming that the I here or the speaker here is you. Uh, am I right in presuming that in 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 the entrance fee that when you talk about my father, you are talking he, about your father? Absolutely. This is a fairly autobiographical uh, poem in that um, I certainly got this this advice from you know Tom Malloy, my father, and um, you know it stayed with me. I don't think I applied it quite the way it was intended, but um, he shared lots of little tips on how you might you know negotiate the, the pubs of of Dublin and <laughs> publand, and so then one of the, that's one of the stories that stayed with me. Right, so let us hear then the entrance fee and this is from Audrey Malloy and her new collection. The entrance fee. My father told me all you really needed was the loose change for a Guinness extra stout. Not a pint, he stressed. It's far too easy for the man behind the bar to work out your progress. Swipe your nearly empty glass. 
No, the amber bottle hides a multitude, or very little, permitting you to pass a quiet afternoon perched on your stool, long enough with luck that someone decent might just happen by, a kindly stranger take a shine to you and shout another Guinness. And thus he'd put in many pleasant days. I found with halter neck and fitted jeans, I didn't even need the entrance fee. Audrey Malloy there with her poem, The Entrance Fee, from her new collection, The Blue Cocktail. So you, you dis- did you just totally ignore your father's advice about drinking bottles of Guinness as opposed to pints, Audrey? <laughs> I ignored a lot of my father's advice. Um, but, to your um, great uh, chagrin now or to your great joy now? Oh, look, I think, um, you know, I think my, my memories around... Um, Drinking and alcohol are very positive, you know, growing up in Dublin and getting to know the whole pub scene and a lot of uh, sing songs with the family and they're, they're, posi- they're positive memories. It wasn't a negative force in our lives or anything. It was always a good thing. The move to Australia, why did that happen? Um, I think, well, probably uh, um, the heart. I, um, the, the, the man that I was in love with wanted to move, give Australia a go or certainly travel around the world. And um, I went thinking I'd be back in a year and thinking that Australia was some sort of fly-blown uh, place that I wouldn't really take to. And mm. I was really uh, knocked for six when I got there and saw how beautiful Sydney was and Sydney Harbour was and and still there, you know, 20 odd years later. So uh, that was what got me there in the first place. And then the the city itself is what kept me there. there. And at what point did Australia and Sydney and that very current experience start to feed into your writing? Oh, that's yeah, that's a great question. Um, I... I think probably when I started this second collection, I became um, a lot more aware of writing of place and uh, just a lot more with my writing that um, place was a very, you know, place was what it was all about. And so there's a lot of place names in this, both in Ireland and Australia, Mm. but a lot about, you know, layers, sediments, um, geographical features, as well as names of places. And, and the other thing is, I guess, I, I wondered, because the natural world is very present in in the collection and the Irish, the, the descriptions of Irish landscapes have really stood out for me in, in many ways. I've only been to Australia once and what I remember most was the sky at night thinking, I, I can make nothing out in this sky at night. I kind of knew some of the constellations in the Northern Hemisphere. It's a totally different ballgame in the Southern Hemisphere, obviously. How How difficult was it? To, to kind of take on board those type of, as you see, you talk about, you know, people who, who are, were born there and lived there all their lives. They don't need a kind of a, an atlas to explain the city to them. What, what writing about Australia, how different is it than writing about Ireland in that respect? It's totally different. Every, everything is different. Um, the, as you said, the night sky is different. The moon, there's no man in the moon there. It's a di- the, the moon is a different way up. Mm. Um, you know, my mother couldn't get her head around the idea that south was chilly and, and that north facing was a good thing. Like yeah. uh, the seasons are not just the wrong, the, the opposite way around. They're offset as well. They don't, winter starts a month later and, and so on. So everything's different. And so I guess that's how I sort of found myself to uh, to the the ocean and the sea as uh, as a way of making a sense of my new home, rather than the more unfamiliar land. 
uh, which had such different flora and mm. fauna and uh, everything was so different there. Yeah, and the sea is a different thing there. The, the light also was another thing that I remember. Was, did that strike you as something very different? Yeah, very very much so. The sky is a different sky. I'm, I'm still take photographs of clouds and sky nearly on a daily basis. <laughs> There's more photographs in my phone of clouds than there would be of my kids. <laughs> As at bottle and glass point, you might explain the kind of the the, the beginnings of this poem and what you're exploring here. Yes, um, I was um, commissioned to write for Red Room Poetry in Sydney a series of poems about transplantation, about the um, the uh, emigrant experience, and um, in this poem. Um, there's a there's a place that I, I walk along the foreshore in Sydney, which is just dotted with beautiful little bays and harbours. And I went there, went there with my daughter one day. And it's um, when the tide is out, it's a rocky shelf. There's rock pools. It's the kind of thing I'm familiar with doing since I was a small child. So that feels very familiar to me. But on the way out there, there are all kinds of plants with little uh, little signs on them to tell you the name of the plant. And I was struck by how the names of the plants were so familiar, but the plants themselves were completely different. Mm-hmm. So. So um, it really kind of wrong footed you to think this was a she oak, but it has nothing in common with an oak tree and so on. So, um, yeah, I, th- I thought about it a lot. And, that, and that's sort of where that poem came from. Now, let's let's have a listen to it then. At Bottle and Glass Point. At Bottle and Glass Point, where the water is brackish, not one thing nor another, the emigrants curse, neither salt nor fresh, but varnish clear. These low-tide pools embossed with knotted snails and spider crabs, the opal gleam of bivalves, a flattened shell like the earbone of a fish. How I came to you. First love convinced a girl to leave her woods, her chequered fields and cross a globe. Why I stayed, a white cove on a creamy strand of pearls, Parsley Bay, Milk Beach, Redleaf Pool. You are my ocean, blue cocktail of salt and sediment, but you are not my leaf. Feathered she-oaks, nothing like the acorned trees I know. Coastal rosemary doesn't grow along my memory banks, and I dare not pluck your candy bells of fuchsia heath to suck the nectar from their stamens as was once my childish habit in the summer drizzle of another shoreline that even now exerts its pull. That's Audrey Malloy reading her poem At Bottle and Glass Point from her second collection, The Blue Cocktail. And one final question on the whole thing, if I can phrase this properly. I'm wondering, because that poem really does write about both places. Do you, and it sounds like you, you love both places equally. I know which child do you like best is always the impossible question. Is it? But do you find... Is it more? Is it difficult to hold two lovers in the way you have in some ways in terms of Australia and Ireland? That's kind of what you're writing about in that poem. Yeah, look, I've been lucky to be in a position where I, I get to come to Ireland regularly. Um, I mean, prior to COVID, it was every year, and I'm trying to get back into that sort mm. of rhythm again. Um, but I, Sydney is my home now. I feel I love it. I love where I live. Uh, um, I love my life there. So I'm reconciled to that. I'm not one of those people that's always torn. Will, will we will move I go back? back or yeah. We do? yeah. Uh, my life is there and um, my children's lives and I am very happy to regularly visit Ireland and have lovely places to stay and people to catch up with and that's sort of how that, that works for me now. 
Well, listen, lovely that you, you are here for this particular collection and look forward to the next one. I wonder if there'll be more Australian it. We'll see when it comes. That is Audrey Malloy speaking about her latest collection called The Blue Cocktail and it is published by Gallery Press. Guiding Bells is a musical event to celebrate the work of Mel Mercier and his 30-year contribution to artistic life and education in Cork. This concert will take place in Cork's Everyman Theatre on Friday, October the 6th, and Mel Mercier himself will lead the Irish Gamelan Orchestra. He'll be joined by some guests, including singer Eero Leonard, dancer Colin Dunn, soprano Claire Egan, and cellist Kate Ellis. Delighted to have Mel Mercier join us now from our Cork studio. 30 years uh, contributing to the artistic life and and the educational life in in Cork. Is there a moment, Is uh, first of all, I'm sure it doesn't feel like 30 years to you, mm-hmm. but what stands out when you think of those 30 years, Mel? Well, you know, I, I, I've had one foot in that academic world in UCC and UL uh, for those three decades, and I've had one foot in the world of the arts. Um, and I suppose... You know, after 30 years last year, on the 1st of October, I decided that I'd shift my centre of gravity um, and put two feet into the world of the arts and take a leap mm. to become a full-time musician. And and I see that move as actually a turn towards music. And to answer your question, um, the perhaps um, the, the, the sort of the high point... Um, of my time, it goes back before, uh, um, previous to 30 years, and that's when I stepped into the rectory, um, the old music department in UCC. In 1986, I walked in as a mature student. And that was, you know, amongst perhaps the best uh, professional decision of my life. And that that itself was also a turn towards music. And I suppose the presence of Michal Osulwan in all of that is hugely important. Absolutely. I mean, I um, I was actually just listening this morning to a, a recording of an interview uh, I did with Michal uh, for a documentary I made about my father, Pada Mercier. And Michal reminded me in that interview of the first time that he met myself and my brother Paul, uh, the playwright and filmmaker, and my father, uh, the three Mercier Bowron players, in the RTE studios in Dublin uh, with Tony McMahon. And uh, he thinks that was in about 1974. So I was about 14 at that time. So that's when I first met Michal when I began to play with him. So I knew him um, before I went to UCC. But I, uh, it was when I discovered that he had made it possible um, for traditional Irish musicians to do a formal music degree at UCC that I then moved from Dublin down to Cork, to the birthplace of my father. And and, and in many ways, uh, I didn't leave it for another uh, 35 years. And, in, you know, not only did you go back to the birthplace of your father, but of course your father as, uh, you know, founding member of the Chieftains and Baron, great Baron and Bones player, you brought a lot of him with you in the, you know, even if it was only inside your heart or inside your soul, but you brought a lot of your father with you. Your father, you, you I think you have childhood memories um, or maybe even young adult memories of your father literally making the bones that he would play. 
Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, you know, the bones, the baron now, I think we can say, is pretty well established mm. um, as a musical instrument in the tradition. But the bones are still kind of hanging out uh, on the edge. You know, they're very much on the margins. The bones are not played by that many people. They're not especially favoured by tune players because they're, they're quite sharp in their sound. So there are very few bones players. But my father um, uh, used them to great effect, I think, um, in the Chieftains, as he had done in the Kjoltori Kulin and, and so had Ronnie McShane, where they were used more as a kind of orchestral colour. And um, my father, you couldn't buy bones on the internet, of course, at that time. So my father would go to the local butcher, get a, the rib bone of a cow, like a full rib, take it home, saw it. Uh, into maybe a six, eight inch lengths and then uh, uh, put it in the oven or on a sunny day when we had sunny days uh, he put it out in the back garden and dry out the marrow until there was a nice uh, little ring out of them and uh, put two in the one hand and, and uh, off, he'd go. off he'd go twisting the wrist and he used to always say it's like um, be like washing <clears throat> the, the movement's like washing a window <laughs> That's mm. interesting, watching the window. It, well, that, of course, is if you have uh, either Pather Mercier's or Mel Mercier's wrist. <laughs> the way they might wash a window, maybe different from the way the rest of us might wash a window, because the bones are not easy to even get a sound out of, never mind anything else. I, another, I think another important moment, probably, and this is quite late on in many ways, was the, your, your, your founding of the, the Gamelin Orchestra, which is so much part of your work at, at UCC. Um, Explain for those who, for the uninitiated, what the gamelan is and what a gamelan orchestra is. If yeah, you would, Mel. I will. A gamelan is the uh, it's the Indonesian uh, equivalent, or in this case, the uh, the Javanese Central Javanese equivalent of the Western orchestra. So this is the the the, the music that is played in the courts and now played throughout uh, throughout Java. It's a set of instruments that. Um, uh, depending on how you count the uh, the hanging gongs and the metallophones, there's like 40 to 60 instruments. Um, there's also a two-stringed fiddle and, and a, a, a small bamboo flute as well. And that uh, music is always associated in Java um, with with dance or with with uh, certain kinds of theatre, mm. so like um, the Wayang Kulit, which is the shadow puppetry, um, and so it's very uh, music and dance are not separated uh, in that culture to the same extent as they as they might yeah. be here, and so it's a it's it's actually uh, Javanese gamelan is one of those uh, non-Western forms of music that uh, began to spread in the uh, uh, middle of the last century. Uh, into university music departments in the United States and in the UK under the umbrella of ethnomusicology programmes. Mm. And so where you had students not just learning about the culture and the cultural background, but also having an opportunity to play. So when I went to, uh, you know, I, I, when I finished my degree in Cork in 1989, I spent two years in California at the uh, California Institute of the Arts. And I did a, a, a master's degree in world music percussion. And that's where I actually mm. sat down for the first time to play Javanese gamelan, West African uh, drumming, uh, South Indian music. And when I came back to Cork, I began to teach it. Michal moved on to UL uh, to take up the uh, professorship there of music in 1994. And then I stepped into 
that responsibility for traditional music, but also to, uh, I wanted to expand the study of non-Western music. And so what became very clear from the students was that they had a huge appetite yeah. for it as long as they were playing. And so the university commissioned the first ever Irish uh, uh, Indonesian uh, gamelan, if there is such, if you, if you can say that. Absolutely. And it came in 1995. Let's have a listen to uh, a piece called The Three Forges, and this features the wonderful voice of Hero Leonard. Just maybe tell you a little bit about this piece before we head into it, Mel. Yeah, so we, the, 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 the room where all of these collaborations happen uh, is the Shomer Gamelan in, in uh, University College Cork or, in, or, or later on in UL. And what, we, what the Irish Gamelan Orchestra has done for the last 10 years is invite other artists in to find a common space or a new space. So Eirle came and encountered the unfamiliar sounds uh, of the of the gamelan and he uh, 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 he was inspired by that to to find a very ancient mm. text to which then uh, he put a melody and we created an arrangement out of that. Severo Leonard there and the Gamelan Orchestra uh, alongside him uh, speaking with Mel Mercier this evening as he celebrates. Are you, are you celebrating 30 years or what What way are you thinking of this concert, uh, Mel, that's coming up? And Ayla will be part of it, of course, along with others who've been part of your life in Cork. That's right. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I wonder about that every day, actually. Um, I think it is, uh, I see it as something that's helping me to make the transition um, it's it's a cadence of some kind, um, but not a final cadence. It's something that helps me to move through this transition to find a new balance uh, mm. uh, in this. Because you know, the, I've always admired artists, but um, and despite the fact that I have been working as an artist uh, as well as uh, being in the academic system for thirty years, I still feel as if I have a huge amount to learn about what it means to live your life as an artist, and so. I feel that this is a this is a way of maybe uh, giving me uh, some momentum and a transition into that space. I suppose it's a, it's another movement in the symphony of your life to you to continue the musical metaphor yes. on. Um, and interesting, you mentioned your brother Paul Mercier, a playwright, and lots of people will know him um, from theatre world and of course from the filmmaking world as well. You're in you're upcoming after this um, after the Everyman concert. You're involved in the production of the Querfella in that's come upcoming in the in the Abbey. That's right. Yeah, um, I was delighted that Tom Creed, who's directing that play, and the Abbey invited me to come and uh, uh, create the music for for this production. I've never done a Behan play um, before, and I'm delighted that it is uh, uh, this one, um, the Queer Fella, because of course it's full of music. Um, and one specific instrument that you're hoping to use. 
Well, I'm I'm actually uh, you know there's there's there is there's there's a variety of instruments that are uh, open to me, but uh, the concertina course is actually used in the in yeah. the production. But uh, uh, more than an instrument, actually, I'm I'm. Uh, it, it, it's whether you can call it an instrument or not now. Uh, that that that's a, that's that's the question. The Owl Triangle, of course, is the world that I'm going to go into, yeah. and uh, I I believe that the original triangle uh, is in the museum. Is uh, um, and I'm hoping that I'll be able to get to that oh, and actually so. and actually record it now. It and of course I was just thinking earlier on. That reminds me, like, uh, of the bell in uh, Beckett's Happy Days. You know, it's used in a uh, well, not not the same way, but uh, I think the sound of that bell is very, very important in the in the production. And, and I'll be I'll be working out from there and the, and the song, the Owl Triangle, to yeah. create a soundscape. But well, I certainly hope you get to record that original sound. It would it will add something. I would add something quite enormous to things. The best of luck for the next thirty years, Mel. Lovely to speak with you. This evening. That's Mel Mercier there and Guiding Bells featuring Mel Mercier, the Irish Gamelan Orchestra and lots of special guests including Aero Leonard and many others takes place at the Everyman in Cork October the 6th everymancork.com for full details I know a little bit over time but I have to say best of luck to all four Irish authors long listed for the 2023 Booker Prize the short list is announced this evening but after we go off air so we're not allowed to say anything six novels will be chosen from that list of 13. Irish contenders are Sebastian Barry for Old God's Time Elaine Feeney for How to Build a Boat, Paul Lynch for the Prophet Song and Paul Murray for the Bee Sting. The final winner will be announced on the 26th of November. Let us hope that we have some Irish interest in that shortlist that will be announced shortly. But that is our lot for this Thursday evening. Paula Shields research. Dolly Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Tommy O'Sullivan was in sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby. Apologies to Fake No Brain and we're a little bit over time. He'll be with you after the news.